Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Titus in the New Testament. The letter from Paul to Titus, uh, right before the book of Hebrews, if you're going through your New Testament. We find ourselves in some really interesting times. Uh, all kinds of adjectives are used, sometimes new ones every week. Sometimes the same adjectives are used every week to explain that things are, things are certainly unusual, uh, a bit uncertain. Um, we have, obviously, you don't need to be told that we're in this uh, pandemic situation. We have some social unrest. We have some economic concerns before us. Um, and all this is happening at a time when Christians have been restricted in getting together. Churches either haven't been able to meet or been somewhat restricted in our ability to meet together. Um, we're going to take a look at a passage of scripture today that I, I believe will provide some reminders, provide some encouragement, provide some things for us uh, in these days. Um, it's uh, unusual. I mean, most of the time at Calvary Chapel, you get to have a Bible study that follows after the most recent Bible study you had. And we, that's typical in verse-by-verse teaching. Well, today I'll try to bring you up to speed with where we are in the text uh, because we're going to jump into the book of Titus and you haven't been studying there. So uh, forgive me for that, but I'm going I'm to do a quick, quick review as we try to, to get up to speed. Um, in this letter, we'll see that Paul is writing to a young pastor named Titus. Uh, this pastor is on the island of Crete. And it's out in the Mediterranean. Uh, if you're familiar with a Bible map, you'll know that in the Mediterranean Sea, way up in the northeast corner is the island of Cyprus, uh, right up, up where Turkey and Syria meet. But then there's this island of Crete, and it's only mentioned a couple times in the Bible. We don't know much about the missionary work there, uh, other than when Paul's ship that got shipwrecked, remember that one? Paul's shipwrecked ship went past or sailed uh, right around the island of, of Crete. But now we see Paul addressing this young pastor, Titus, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of work our way through here to get up to the text that we're going to pick up because we're really going to look at a text that starts in the middle of chapter two. But let's take a few minutes to just look at and get our bearings here as we go through the letter. Because I think we'll see here, uh, we'll, see, we'll see some interesting things that we can take with us today, uh, not only for, for what Paul was addressing and the concerns that were going on in Crete at that time, we'll see similarities that relate to our day as well. So verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul says, uh, the reason I left you in Crete... Okay, so, so Paul, Titus had this assignment on this island, and, and it was a sizable island, it, it still is, and so there's a number of cities, number of churches that were established, but he says that you should set in order the things that are lacking. So there was a big need. And, and he's going, th in this letter, he's going to review those things and, and what steps Titus should take in order to address those, those concerns. And the first thing 
He said, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And so the first part of chapter one is really the qualifications for these men that were going to be elders. And so you can, you can just boil that down to, Paul says, the first thing you need to do is get the right guys in leadership. Get the right people in, in, in leadership roles. Then by verse 9, he really kind of turns to the main task of these guys who are in leadership. Uh, he says, holding fast the faithful word. Because up until verse 8, it's all qualities, character traits of these people who are in leadership, which are good reminders for all of us. Another time, another, another Bible study. But by verse 9, he says, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So a person in leadership or any mature believer really should be not only one who knows the word and lives the word, but has the ability to teach the word and then defend the word when it's contrasted with something else. Does that make sense? So Paul says, get the right guys in leadership and their main task has to do with knowing the word of God, living it, teaching it and defending it. Okay. So that's what he's up to so far. Now, let's get a handle on this environment that Titus is working in, that Paul's addressing. Note in verse 10, he starts to say, there are many who are insubordinate, idle talkers, deceivers. So there'll be opposition. But by the time you get to verse 12, he says, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans, those who live on Crete, are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, this testimony is true. This testimony is true. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So, Titus was operating in an environment where there were some, some bad guys. <laughs> there were some guys who weren't living by the truth that we have in the scriptures. They were deceivers. And they had some major character flaws. They were lazy. They were gluttons. And, and Paul says... It's true. There's some real, uh, real character flaws out there. Now, I know, be careful, you know, is that, does that happen around us today? A absolutely. Uh, in the Christian realm, there's certainly people who have different views uh, of what the scriptures say. And then, of course, in the world out there today, there's plenty of people who don't want anything to do with the God of the Bible or the things we do as, as believers, so... Then we get to chapter two. And the next step that Paul takes here in instructing Titus is the, uh, the qualities or the encouragement for not just the leaders, but everybody. He goes through and he starts with the older men. And he, he gives instruction for the older men. And then he moves over to the older women. And then he slides right from that into, okay, older women, instruct the younger women in these things. And then he moves over to younger men. So who did we miss? Guess what, guys? That's everybody. You were either a young man or an older man. You were either a young woman or you're an older woman. I know there's some debate as to which camp you'd want to be in, but that covers everybody. Important point. Paul didn't just ask Titus to address the leaders. He really said, 
We need to be looking at the whole spectrum of the church, all believers. And let me pause there and just comment that we seem to have set that aside somewhat today in the modern church. We seem to have a, an entertainment and a performance culture in many churches that says, by and large, the majority of the people will hold the door open for you, maybe even serve you a nice fancy coffee on the way in. But really, we want you to fill a seat, we want you to put some money in the plate, and then you're gone. No, my Bible instructs, and we will see today as we go through our study, it's much more than that. God is interested in, Paul was interested in, Titus was instructed to be concerned about the maturing and the growth and the faith of all people, of everybody, not just the leaders. So now verses 9 and 10 really give us um, our, our launching point for our study today. He talks about bond servants. He says, exhort bond servants to be obedient to their masters, well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, showing good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And at first glance, we go, well, it doesn't apply to us. We don't have slaves. We don't have those today. Well, work with me a little bit, and can we slide that over into the workplace? Can we say that that may indeed be applicable in the workplace? If you're an employee, this is how you should look at your work. This is how you should conduct yourself. Sure, I think that's fair. Ah, but the second half of verse 10 really gives us our phrase that we're going to look at. It says that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. The word adorn there means to wear, really to arrange or to put in order or to wear it well. To wear it well. And that's what Paul's getting at. And he will launch into this next section of scripture. Because our study will take us from verse 11 here to through verse 11 of the, um, of the next chapter. Yeah, that's what it's about. Are we as believers, all of us, able to display those qualities that would demonstrate the gospel is working in our lives? Our character, our lives, our conduct displays the gospel. Joe Foch says, this may be the best theology there is. Not an argument, but a life that's submitted to the Lord and lived to honor the Lord. If you want a, another text for your notes that will really talk about this in more detail... Uh, jot down Colossians chapter 3, the first 17 verses. Really goes to that idea of adornment wearing out what we, what we do in our lives. Because there Paul talks about what to put off and then what to put on or what to, what to wear. We're not going to go there. We're going to get into this text now. Let's take the first section of scripture here in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 2 in Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, 
looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. So he says here, the grace of God. And if you want to try to boil this long sentence down into one thing, it basically says the grace of God teaches us how to live in this present age. If you take out the qualifying statements and the, and the extensions there, the grace of God, it brings salvation. It's appeared to all men. It teaches us. The grace of God teaches us. Then we deny un ungodly world and worldly lusts. We live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So the grace of God teaches us how to live in this present age. This present age? Yeah, think about Crete. What were they faced with? Were they in a culture that seemed to be opposed to God? Somewhat. They had some real character issues that were opposed to how a Christian would live. They had some people that would literally come against the teaching of the scriptures. And we have that today too. We have that today too. So let's start phrase by phrase. The grace of God. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. Getting something you don't deserve. And of course that's our very salvation. The grace of God that brings salvation. That's the gospel. That's the very gospel. In Ephesians 2, it says, by grace we're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works that no man can boast. In Romans 5, 8, God's demonstrating his love to us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our salvation being restored to a right standing with the God who created us comes by God's grace. He extends his mercy, so we're forgiven by trusting in Christ. And by grace, we're then adopted as his children, sons and daughters of God. Um, it's something we don't deserve, but we trust in what Christ has done for us. That's the gospel message. Now he goes on to say here, it's appeared to all men in verse 11. It's appeared to all men. It makes you think of that verse over in Romans where it, it talks about since the creation, uh, his attributes have been clearly seen. So people are, we're without excuse. Romans 1.20, I believe, is the, is the verse. Well, here that's really talking about God's uh, creative hand. Uh, people in general are without excuse because we can see that there's a creator from creation. But here he says, uh, he's appeared to all men this grace of God that brings salvation. Of course, we know that to be Jesus. And that grace teaches us. And that's where we get into it in verse 12. Grace teaches us how to live. I don't know if you're like me at all, but responding to some of the things that have gone on in the last, say, six months, uh, everything from I'm puzzled, bit of a head scratcher, frustrated, um, concerned, some people are fearful or afraid, some people are downright mad, 
some people are going, what, what how would that mean? And, and, you know, the health officials say one thing and the next week it seems to be that somebody else is saying something differently. The politicians are all over the board pointing fingers at each other. It's crazy times. And then we have the, an economy that we're not sure where it's going to go. We really, really don't. Everybody hopes it's going to get better, but how do we act? Well, can we take a lesson here from saying, hmm, in the world, people are going to respond to these things with fear, anger, whatever else it might be. But does the grace of God teach us something differently? Does the grace of God teach us as believers how we can respond in these uncertain times? I believe it does. I believe it does. What we see here is that it teaches us to deny self, deny the worldly lusts, and the ungodliness. This side of eternity, we all still have a human nature. Even as believers, as we're new creations, we still end up with a struggle between a new godly nature and our human responses that sometimes aren't so godly. But we deny those. And that's what Jesus called his followers to do, right? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow, follow me. The whole idea of following or pursuing any of the worldly lusts or ungodliness, while it's part of our human nature, we know ultimately it has consequences. If you remember the Israelites in the wilderness wanderings, you know, they spent 40 years you know, doing something they should have taken less than 40 days, um, but that was because of unbelief. And that's because they wanted to follow their worldly lusts. Psalm 106, verses 13 to 15 uh, it talks about that. It talks about they had these desires and God basically let them do what they wanted, but it says he sent leanness into their soul. As a Christian, if you want to follow those worldly desires or you know, follow what the world's cues are and, and your own desires rather than what God would instruct you to do, God will let you exercise that freedom he created you with, but you will have a leanness of soul. If you follow those things, you're spiritually, you will be in a very uncomfortable and dry place. It's just the way it is. Psalm 106 is a reference there, verses 13 to 15. So he says, if, if, if the grace of God has truly appeared to us, it teaches us, the first thing is to deny ourselves or to deny that, those, uh, the ungodliness and the worldly lusts. Then how should we live? We should live, the first thing is soberly. We should live soberly. Um, a better word may be self-controlled, may be um, sensibly, sensibly. It means being aware of what's going on around us, making good judgments, unimpaired judgment um, might be a way to put it as well. And then upright, that we are upright. Now, we know that none of us in our own strength can live truly upright lives. Um, we are seen as righteous in God's sight strictly because of what Jesus did for us. But uh, that is uh, granted to us out of his mercy and grace, isn't it? Second um, Corinthians 5, 21. Uh, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So any upright living we have, we do not in order to attain that relationship with God, but because we have that relationship with God. 
and then godly. And those two fit in well together. You can think of Micah 6, 8. Right? What does the Lord require you but to do justly, to love mercy, mercy, and walk humbly with your God? Now, he moves on. Verse 13, he says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is an important step, I believe, in helping us to process what we see going on in, in the world around us whether it's our, in our day and age now or, or at any time. We, see, we need to have an eternal perspective. I don't know if you've looked in your wallet lately, but you are a dual citizen. Did you know that? We are dual citizens. Yes, we're citizens and we're called to be responsible citizens here in this country, here on this earth. But we're also citizens of heaven. We've been granted eternal life. That eternal life, I believe, has already begun in a sense. Um, and so we are citizens of heaven. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that, knowing that truth should help us to live different lives here and especially give us perspective when times are uncertain or fearful. We look for that blessed hope, that eternal life that's promised, that we're to have that e eternal perspective as we live in this present age. My extended family um, has gone through some in interesting times the last few years. I come from, a, uh, I'm one of 10 siblings. In 2018, after a two-year battle with cancer, my older brother Kevin passed away. Right before he passed away, my younger brother Ben was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And right after Kevin's funeral, Ben called me and he says, Pat, I need your help. I said, sure, yeah, what, 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 what can I do? Anything, you know. He says, well, you've always been more spiritual than I. He said, they just told me I got six months to live and uh, I'm afraid to die. I'm asking for your help. Okay. He was really coming very <laughs> directly to that, that verse we, we hear of, uh, uh, always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask you for the reason of the hope that you have. He was facing death, and he says, that guy seems to have a hope. I want to know more about that. So we talked, and uh, over the course, his health was declining rapidly over the course of a couple months. Ben came to faith. And the Lord, out of his mercy and grace, gave Ben an extra year. He passed away last uh, August, so just short of a year ago now. But in the meantime, not only did he come to faith, and the Lord did a stirring work in his immediate family, but we've also seen several other members of my extended family turn to the Lord. And others who've been much more interested in learning these things. You see, that blessed hope that we have, sure, it's ours, but in a world where things all of a sudden get difficult, guess what? Don't be surprised if people say, I, I want to I know more about this hope that you have. Yeah, it's an amazing thing because I've been a believer for a little over 40 years, and I've prayed for each of my siblings regularly for 40 years. Yeah. And in Ben's situation, that's what we saw. We saw him come to faith after that much time. 
Miss the guy? Miss him big time. But also we saw going through a couple of funerals, our view of someone who now is with the Lord forever, our view and our response is a bit different. Even though we mourn his loss, the Bible says we don't mourn as those who have no hope. See, other people are just torn up when they lose a loved one because it's, it's all done. And sure, life on this earth, it's, it's sad. But as believers, we see things a bit differently. We see things a bit differently. Now, we look for that blessed hope, and then we look for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you talk about the second coming of the Lord or the rapture of the church. Could be at any time. Could be at any time. And, uh, of course, signs like we see going on today, this disruption and, and uh, many, many things going on, people say, wow, it could be any day. Look at these things that are going. Sh sure could. Sure could. I can also tell you that Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. And I can also tell you that, been a believer for a little over 40 years, 40 years ago people were talking about the rapture and many believers were convinced it was going to happen by this time or that time or another time. And every once in a while some, some gentleman would come along and, and teach, you know, he's going to return on such and such a date. And we're all going, no, don't do that. If Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour, I don't, I wouldn't want to stand before my creator and say, I, I'm more clever than you thought. I figured it out. No. So what do I mean by all that? We look, we live our lives with the blessed hope that we will be with him forever. We may even be in the generation that sees his return to earth for his church. We may be, we may be, we may not. One of the things I've learned through the years is that verse where, where um, Peter says, God is patient. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so the problem with just trying to take events and forcing, well, the Lord must return because look at these events. We're going, do we know the depth of his patience? He's not willing that any should perish. And so don't be surprised if it goes longer than you first thought. Be prepared for that. Remember Jesus gave the parable of the 10 virgins that were you know, attending at this wedding, but they didn't know when the bridegroom was coming? Five, it says, were ready. Five were prepared. They fell asleep. They all fell asleep. But then the bridegroom came late, and five were ready. They had oil. The other five didn't have oil. They weren't prepared. And they didn't get in on the, on the wedding. I've wondered about that recently, because I do see some Christians who seem to spend all their time on forcing little events in our world to fit some prophecy that's given. Some of them spend all their time looking at Europe and any leader that rises up in Europe and they play pin the tail on the Antichrist. And it's like, uh, okay, we're to understand the times, but we're to be looking for his appearing. This is second appearing. We already talked about his first appearing that brought that grace to us. With a patience and looking to be his faithful servants. Because that's really the lesson that he taught there in Matthew um, 25, I think is where the, um, the parable of the 10 virgins and then beyond that, it talks about being the faithful servant in Matthew 24. And that's what he calls us to be. We're to watch and pray. We're to occupy until he comes. 
And did you know, um, I don't know if it's been announced here or not, but on Wednesday nights here, I think Don's shifting the meeting a bit to do a little bit more prayer time, uh, added into the Wednesday night, I think shorten the study a bit and spend more time uh, praying together. So uh, feel free um, to, to come on out on, on Wednesday nights. Um, as believers, as we look for his return, we're, that's what we're instructed to do is watch and pray, to occupy until he comes, not get too caught up in, in trying to just figure out the, the signs. So. Okay, back to our text. Um, verse 14, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Jesus came to redeem us from lawless deeds. I don't know about you, but that word lawlessness has kind of taken on new meaning this year. Anybody with me on that one? Boy, we've seen a lot of stuff going on where we're scratching our heads going. And then it seems like some public officials don't even want to stop it. Almost like deep down inside, they want to kind of encourage it or something. It's like, whoa, what's going on? There's some lawless deeds going on around us. Some wonder if the government doesn't stop it, will they get to the point where they can't stop it? I don't know. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the heart of man at times. So um, Jesus came to redeem us from lawless deeds. Uh, but he also said that in the end times, because lawlessness would abound, the love of many will grow cold. Yeah. Things it, in the end times, Matthew 24, I think the verses, uh, Matthew 24, 12, lawlessness will abound. The love of many will grow cold. It's concerning. And will things get so bad where Christians have to just kind of disperse and, and some get discouraged? I don't know. But we're to be zealous for good works. We're to be purified for his purposes. The goal that Jesus has is to work in his people through the power of his Holy Spirit to represent the kingdom of God on earth. Crazy, I probably would have picked a different plan because I know myself. But that's what he wants to do. You see, he wants to do a work in us and then he wants to do a work through us to demonstrate his love to the world. And that's what Paul is continuing to reiterate and build upon as he goes through this. On that island of Crete with all its social issues, Paul is telling this pastor Titus, this is what we need to train the people in. It's not just about coming to church. It's about developing and maturing in our faith, maturing in our relationship with the Lord so we can represent him, represent him uh, here on the earth. So, Verse 15, Paul says, speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. So that idea of exhorting and rebuking, strong words, exhorting kind of on the positive end, strong urging on, rebuking <laughs> gets a little bit more critical. To rebuke means to speak a bit more directly and perhaps correct. So let's get on to the second block of our text here, uh, verses 1 through 8 in chapter 3. Paul says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. 
But when the kindness and love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. These things I want you to affirm constantly that those who believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So the first part of this really says, remind them to be good citizens. Remind them to be good citizens. I probably don't need to mention it here where you guys know your Bibles pretty well, but Romans 13, starting in verse one, Paul there lays out the case that, hey, Christians should be good citizens. We're not only to um, obey the law, we're to uh, pray for our leaders. Uh, Romans chapter 13. Now, there are a few exceptions. And the way some people think, maybe we're getting closer to some of these exceptions these days. It's in Acts 4 and 5, chapters 4 and chapter 5 of, of Acts, where the apostles at that time um, felt like when they were commanded not to speak about Jesus or in Jesus' name, they said, sorry, we can't obey that command. We have a higher command from God himself, uh, from Jesus, so we're, we're going we're gonna to do that. So there are exceptions when the Christian um, serves God above some order that contradicts that uh, from, his, uh, from the government. Those are exceptions, though. Be careful. Some people would have you think it's all the time. Um, but uh, our, our challenge this year is we get conflicting um, instructions from different layers of government. <laughs> you know, they say this on the federal level and then the state level and this one. And, you know, so it's like, whoa, whoa what do we do? You know, it's a, it's, everybody's confused. We're in some new, some new ground that way. But the Christian should be a good citizen and pray for his leaders, even if you don't like them, even if you don't agree with them, even if you didn't vote for them, we're instructed to pray and show respect for our leaders. And I think Christians have a golden opportunity there to set a different example because the world, boy, it's getting more and more polarized on the political scene. And uh, so if someone's in office that you don't agree with, pray for them. You know, rather than take a bite out of them, you know, maybe stop and let's pray for them. Then Paul says, be ready for every good work. Be ready for every good work. He's going to get back into the works thing here in a minute. So I'll leave that one for now. And then he says, speak evil of no one. Are you uncomfortable on that one like I am? There's some people that really, you know, Ouch, they just, I just disagree with them or what they say or what they do. And I'm, oh, that guy, you know, his motives are obviously, you know, not good. We take a deep breath and we're to speak evil of no one. Yeah, it's hard. It's even harder if you're active on social media. Yeah, some of the stuff that's gone on this year in social media platforms, um, careful, Christian. Besides, social media may come back to haunt you. <laughs> so just from an older guy to some younger people, um, be ye careful. <laughs> what you put on social media may come back to haunt you. Then we're to be peaceable and gentle and humble. Now, those things are easy to say, hard to teach. Uh, is it easy to be peaceable? Well, if I let the Lord continued to transform my life, it becomes easier and easier. 
Is it easy to be gentle? Same thing, same answer. Uh, not by nature gentle. I, I know, big surprise to some of you, but that gentleness comes as we allow the Lord to work in our lives. We take a deep breath and we just say, Lord, how would you have me to act in this situation? And then humble to all men. Humble. It, it, it is a little harder to be humble when, when we're right um, and others are wrong. And of course, we always want to stand by our maxim of everyone's entitled to my opinion, um, especially with so many variables in the world today. But we're to be humble to all men. Are there exceptions to these things? I mean, some Christians love to bring up the example of Jesus overturning the tables at the temple, those money changers, and how Jesus got mad, didn't he? Well, he did. He, it sure seems like it, that righteous anger. But uh, this is the general instruction for us to be peaceable, gentle, and humble to all men. Because... As we read on in the text, it says in verse 3, we ourselves were also foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy. Any of that in the world today? Wow, we see a lot of that in the world today. Hateful and hating one another. You see, that's how we used to be. I mean, some of you say, well, that wasn't that bad. Well, okay, if you want to compare, fine. You'll always find someone who is worse, but someone who is better. The, the message here is, verse 4, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared. Did you notice that's like the third time we've seen the word appeared here? You see that? Yeah. The grace of God uh, that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We'll see his glorious appearing in his second coming. But here it says, the kindness and love of God our Savior towards man appeared. Yeah. We were all lost once, but the gospel, this love of God. Remember, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his goodness that leads us to repentance from Romans. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It's from his mercy. And here's the key. Here's the key. When we come to Christ, whether you're young or old, the Bible teaches us that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Yeah, the old is gone, the new has come. We're to be new people in Christ, a new life in, 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 in Christ. And in that new life, he wants to regenerate. He wants to bring about a new person. And it's a renewing that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. A couple verses, if you're a note taker, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. It says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty and then he goes on to talk about uh, how this, we're changed from one degree of glory to another. And this happens by the Spirit. That's in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it goes right along with Romans 12.2, right? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you can, you can prove what is the good, pleasing, and acceptable will of God. You see, for the believer, it's not enough to simply say, okay, I trusted Jesus, he, now he's given us his Holy Spirit. Are we allowing him to build us into mature men and women? That's the goal. I'm going to turn to uh, Colossians chapter. I know I've given you a lot of references here. I'm going to turn over to Colossians because in that letter, Paul kind of lays out what he hoped to do in his ministry. 
128 says, he says, him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Now that word perfect, we go, who's going to be perfect except God? No, that word means mature and complete. Move on to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, rooted down, built up in him, and established in the faith as you've been taught. So, back to my comment earlier about what we see in a modern evangelical Christianity is just this consumer performance mentality. That's not it at all. The goal for us Christians is to not just hear the gospel message and respond to it, but then to grow in him to maturity so we can represent him in a world that'll make a difference and represent him well. Yeah, that's the goal. And that's what Paul is. As we get back into our text in Titus, that's what Paul is saying here to Titus. Remind them of these things, that the goal here is for us to mature as believers to allow that work to be happening. And he says here, um, he uses the word abundantly. He's poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. Yeah. We need to seek his Holy Spirit in our daily lives. To say, Lord, keep doing that transforming work in me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Not just leading and guiding me in decisions and in my daily life, but also in that transforming work. Keep teaching me the things I need to learn. Showing me those things. And then he says, we're justified by grace. Verse 7, having been justified by his grace. Justified simply means, you can just move the word, the letters around a little bit, just as if I'd. Justified means just as if I'd. We're seen as righteous in God's sight, just as if we'd never sinned. Why? Because Jesus has brought about the forgiveness of our sin and our record is clean. And then we're heirs, hope of eternal life. Verse uh, 8, it's a faithful saying. Affirm these things constantly. Those who believe God should be careful to maintain good works. These are profitable, good and profitable to men. So there's a clear distinction here. Paul has, has, has emphasized that our relationship is God, with God is not based on our good works. But he's saying, if indeed we are believers, we will be allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives so that we use these good works to, to, to live for God and to adorn that doctrine, to, to live out our faith in a sense. So works aren't the means to get to God. Works are because we have a relationship with God, if that makes any sense. Now, a couple bonus verses here that really seem to fit the day. Um, uh, verses 9 and 10 and 11, I guess. Um, Paul says to Titus, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they're unprofitable and useless. Reject the divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. That may prove to be a good passage for 2020. Um, there's so many different views on so many different things, on all the topics, all the things going on around us. And, and we haven't even gotten to an election yet. Uh, we, have, we have a major election in, in our country this year. And so it's, it's, it's become more and more polarizing on many fronts. Now, here Paul's specifically talking about doctrinal things, which I believe is true. Um, 
to earnestly contend for the faith, like it says in Jude, but how do we do that without being contentious? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the challenge for the believer, is to know that we, we need to earnestly contend for what's right, and yet not do it in a way that is wrong. Not easy to do, and sometimes we just need to back away. The, the, the kind of the, the marker here in verse 10, it says, reject the divisive man after the first and second admonition. After two attempts to really, you know, make some progress in a conversation with someone, after that, if they're still combative, we should just let it go. That's, that's how I read this. Um, obviously, um, if it gets into doctrinal issues and you feel like you're in over your head, you know, get one of your elders, get your pastor involved, that type of thing. Get someone, you know, bring somebody in who, who uh, may know the word better or be one of your leaders in, in the church. Um, but we're not to get caught up arguing. We're not to get caught up um, in division. One way to tell the difference is if you get into it with someone and it may be over you know, wearing masks, it may be over, you know, where's the economy going? It may be over what's going to happen in the election. I don't know. Maybe about toppling statues. We have to see, do they want an answer or do they want an argument? And I think after two attempts, you can usually tell. If they're in it for an argument, I think it's time we can just back away and go our way. Uh, if they genuinely want an answer, um, then we need to pray that, okay, Lord, show me some truth here. What, what can shed some light on the, on the situation? So there we have it. In our times of some fearful, some anxiety, some rioting, strong opinions, arguments, we forget that the New Testament also had its stressful conditions, its stressful times. Read Paul's resume sometime in 2 Corinthians. All that he went through, beaten, shipwrecked, left for dead. He faced some real difficult times as well. So Paul knows that there are stressful times, but here's his instruction to this pastor in this culture that had some real serious issues. And he says, here's what you're to remind the people of. It's the grace of God that teaches us. We need to have that as our anchor point. What did Jesus do for us? And what has he done to transform our lives? Then what do we do to live that out as we uh, represent him in this world? Our very salvation is based on it but it also gives us perspective as we live our lives in this kind of world. We look for the Holy Spirit's guidance for direction. We also look for the Holy Spirit's transforming work to continue to mature us. Are we, are we to be good citizens? Absolutely, absolutely. And we're to adorn or wear this, this gospel. Um, we should pray about and look for ways to represent him every day. And I'll leave you with this quote from uh, Oswald Chambers, it was in Utmost for His Highest here recently. He said, always calculate, or mean, meaning measure what you're going to do, with God in view. Always calculate without evil in mind. Always calculate with God in view, but always calculate without evil 